We are going to be in uh, James chapter 5, verses 13 through 18. I go ahead and, go ahead and turn a Bible there. I encourage you, you it will be helpful. Uh, there's going to be actually a point where we're kind of moving through James, and so it would be helpful if you go ahead and get it open there so you can take a look at the verses as they come up. I'll just tell you from the get-go, uh, this passage was a lot like the passage I preached from him on faith, and so I had intended to um, preach it through in one week, and then all week long I wrestled with, you can do this, you can do this, you can do this, and then I was sitting there this morning realizing you can't do this. Uh, so we're going to be in this passage this week and next week. Um, and so anyway, I'll just give you fair warning. Uh, that's the way it's going to be. So our, we only had one, two more weeks in James uh, after this, but now we got three. So, But it's going to be worth it. I promise you uh, the reason I held off was because I would have had to deal so quickly with some of the most important things he has to say uh, about prayer that I didn't want us to miss it. So we're going to set out one half of the message today. We'll set out the second half next week. So, all right, James chapter 5, verses 13 through 18. Let's read it, we'll pray, and then we will study. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Father, we need you now. <laughs> Even in this moment, as I think about this topic of prayer, this, this call to prayer, here we are. We need you. We need your wisdom, your insight, your spirit to lead us into truth. And do I feel especially inadequate this morning? Would you work? Would you speak to your people? Would you shape us that we might walk in accordance with this word? I pray these things, Jesus, in your name and for your glory. Amen. So Matthew Henry is a pastor and a theologian from the late 1600s. He's famously written. Maybe you've heard this quote from him. You may as soon find a living man that does not breathe as a living Christian that does not pray. You may as soon find a living man that does not breathe as a living Christian that does not pray. Matthew Henry, he wrote these words in response to Jesus' teaching on prayer from Matthew chapter 6. In it, he says, when you pray. So Jesus isn't teaching a if you pray or maybe one day you'll pray. It's when you pray. Jesus is assuming that his people will pray. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And so Matthew Henry realizes, learned from this, and, and actually taught the centrality, the importance of prayer in the life of a believer. As we can see from this text that we've read today from James, that Matthew Henry's not the only one that got that. He's not the only one that understood that. So James, though, didn't write these words as a do as I say, not as I do kind of example. Like, if, if I, well, this is embarrassing to admit, but I'll go ahead and admit it just because, hey, we're, we're friends, right? 
I would suggest that I'm not anywhere near as faithful in prayer as I should be or could be. Probably you could, some of you maybe could admit the same thing. But as I teach on prayer, I'm also convicted of my own weakness in prayer. So, so if I were to say these things or write these things that James wrote, it might be more of a do as I say, not as I do kind of instruction. But that's not what James does here. In fact, testimony of history tells us that, that James lived this out to its fullest. Eusebius, a church historian writing from the 300s, was referencing um, a, a historian from the early 200s when he wrote these words. He alone, James, alone was permitted to enter into the holy place, for he wore not woolen but linen garments. And he was in the habit of entering alone into the temple and was frequently found upon his knees begging forgiveness for the people so that his knees became hard like those of a camel in consequence of constantly bending them in his worship of God and asking forgiveness for the people. He was so committed to prayer, it said that it physically altered his body. He grew calluses on his knees because he was so constantly knelt to pray. See, like Matthew Henry, James understood the centrality and the importance of prayer in the life of a Christian. Now, here he is bringing his letter to a close and calling us for a second time to a a life marked by serious, intentional, purposeful, faithful prayer. He calls us for a second time to it. It's not the second time he's made reference to prayer. He, He makes reference to prayer a couple of other times in the letter, but here... Like the the, the first time, he calls us specifically to do it. Pray. Christian. Christian, as we wait patiently on the Lord, pray faithfully to the Lord. That's the first half of the message that we'll be focusing on today. As we wait patiently on the Lord, pray faithfully to the Lord. The first call to prayer came in a very similar way to us. In the opening of the letter, James is showing us, calling us to count it all joy when we face trials of various kinds. When we face difficulty of various kinds, count it all joy. Then he immediately turns and says, if anyone's lacking wisdom, as you face these trials and are supposed to be counting it all joy, if you are lacking wisdom, ask God for it in faith. Turn to God in faith and request wisdom. That's prayer. It's a call to pray for a very specific Reason Now, again, he calls us to prayer. This time, like before, it's not in a vacuum. He's not just throwing this out there. It's not like there's not been something building to it. It's not like it's not connected, and all of a sudden he's got to say, well, i got to close this out, so I think I'll just call him to prayer. It's actually rooted intrinsically, rooted and woven through the tapestry of what's happening in this letter. Let me just show you how that works. We're going to walk our way backwards a little bit through the passages that we've been studying. So look just immediately before the passage we read today, James chapter 5, verse 12. When he calls all of them, above all, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Now that's not an exact call to prayer, right? But it does set kind of a context for us about how our words are to be used. Now if you were here last week, you heard Dave preach that this should lead to a consistent life, to true speech in the same way that our life is made true in Christ. Our words should be made true in Christ. James has said so much about our words. And in verse 12, it's the first, not maybe not the first explicit positive expression, 
But it's one of the clearest positive directions given to our words. Every other time he's referenced our word, be careful, let's say something inappropriate or wrong that's not accurate. But, but nearly every other time he's referenced our words, it has been in a negative sense. Do not do this. Like not negative, like because he's got a negative attitude. He's telling you not to do something. Don't grumble against your brothers. He said, I think it was uh, uh, somewhere in chapter 5, 5 verse 9. Don't grumble against your brothers. In chapter 3, if you remember the first half of chapter 3, he opens up and he says, not everybody should be teachers because everybody's got a problem with their tongue. He talks about the tongue being very small but being able to do great damage. Here in verse 12, he turns the corner and begins to give us positive, positive ways in which positive action that we are to take with our tongue. Instead of grumbling, brothers and sisters... Pray for one another. Instead of sitting around speaking ill of everything and complaining about the situations and circumstances you're in, brothers and sisters, pray. This is the idea. Because you have been made who you are, because God has made you consistently true through and through, now let your words express that. So when you speak, let your yes be yes, your no be no, and by the way, pray. In James chapter 5, verse 7 through 11, James encourages us to look. Let me, let me just say something about that. Sorry. There, there might be something to the fact. There might be something to, to this, that if we'd spend more time praying. We, you, you, you've, you've heard it said that men have so many words and women have so many words and we're going to use those words during the day, right? And, and that's a stereotype. It doesn't always fit. And I don't remember what the words are. A- Amy typically says that I have enough words for the both of us. And so she, she doesn't need to say a lot. But what if we used our words, uh, our word count per day, praying? How different would the language we use be? This is something to think about. Would it more consistently represent who God says you are if your words were marked with prayer instead of grumbling, instead of destruction? James 5, 7 through 11, we'll keep going. James 5, 7 through 11, James encourages us to look forward to the Lord's coming. If you go back to chapter 5, verse 7 through 11, it's just the previous passage. He calls us, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. He tells us, he he uses the farmer as an example. He uses the prophets as an example. He uses Job as an example. And every one of them had hardship to face. They had difficulty to face before they enjoyed the fruit that was to come. Endure patiently because the fruit is coming. Endure patiently because Jesus is bringing justice. In some way, if you think about it, this call to prayer is, is, is simply a call to us, for us to do our work like the farmer. Just getting in and taking on the discipline and duty of prayer, praying for God to work, praying for God to move as we simply wait for the reward that he has promised will come. And in fact, if you think back about what we read just a minute ago in these verses on prayer, you will hear both of those things. Pray. And he will answer. Pray and he will save. Pray and he will heal. This is rooted in in all that James has been teaching us. He is not just haphazardly throwing on a call to prayer. It's intrinsically woven into the life of Christians. James chapter 4, 7 through 10. James begins to call people to live repentantly. 
as a result of their real and true saving faith, as a result of having heavenly wisdom and applying heavenly wisdom instead of worldly wisdom, he calls them to repentance. You might remember the way he started that call with the words, you adulterous people. It's a hard one to forget, right? Like it, if, if I hear that, I'm going to remember it. But specifically in that call, he called them to, to live in daily repentance, to, to submit yourselves to God and resist the devil. The devil will flee from you. Draw near to God. So submit to God. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. This is striking. Because as James walks through this prayer as, or this call to prayer That idea of submitting to God, of drawing near to God, an expectation of him drawing near to you, in humbling yourself before God that he might do the exalting and the lifting up is over and over and over three times at least expressed in this call to prayer. See, in each of these instances, he he notes the need, the absolute need that we have to draw near to God. Yeah, he demonstrates the absolute need we have to be humble before him and the absolute promise of God to be the one who works in power and in might. Over and over he says this. So Christian, Christian, as we wait on the Lord, pray faithfully to the Lord He calls us everyone to pray faithfully, to turn regularly to the Lord, to turn in upon Him. Listen, the difficulties in this life, the difficulties we face in this life are no reason for us to run off and figure out a better way. They're no reason for us to run off and figure out that God must not love us. The the trials and tribulations of this life are no reason for us to determine that God must have forgotten us or abandoned us. Instead, James sees them as the very reason that we turn and never quit praying. Never cease prayer. Because this life is hard. And there's a really strong word I'd like to use, but I don't know that all of you would think is appropriate. So you put that word in your mind, however you feel like you want to put it there. But let me tell you, as we've seen over and over, he knows the difficulty we face. He understands the complications of this life. And instead of trying to figure out our own way or determine that God must have forgotten because, you know, he does that. He says, pray. Pray, pray, pray. See, it seems that James expects all of God's people to be regular in prayer. Or as Matthew Henry put it, he seems to expect us to depend on prayer as living Christians as much as living people depend on air. Try and take a few minutes without a breath. Tell me how that works out for you. You're already breathing because it's so absolutely necessary. I think James would intend us to see this is true about prayer. And so he calls us to it. 
In the first verse, in verse 13, it's a call to prayer and praise. And when we pray faithfully, we aren't just praying to see needs met, right? Like, oh, I'm going to pray until God answers my prayer, and then prayer, I don't need it anymore. Well, James doesn't let us see it that way. James says that when you see prayer working, you turn to praise the one who made it work. The idea here is that in both cases, we must remember that God is the one who is sovereign over the day that we enjoy and over the day that we endure. God is sovereign in both. He rules them both. There is never a circumstance, never a day, never a season in which it is out of order for us to call on God in prayer. It just simply determines the circumstance, the day, the season, just determines on what fills our prayer. Whether it's prayers of supplication or prayers of praise. The word that is used there in Praise, you know, we're automatically going to think, oh, I got to sing praise songs. So I'm going to go out in my car, I'm going to turn on 88.3, and I'm going to sing along with praise songs. But reality, the word that's used there in this passage, when he says, if anyone is cheerful, let him sing praise, it's actually a word that refers back to the Psalms. Let him sing Psalms, let him sing these prayers. See, the reality is that we should always be praying regardless of what happens in our life. Some of the commentaries I read from this week and have been reading from this whole way through were very helpful. And rather than try to reword that or, or make, well, just rip them off, I thought I'd give them credit for what I learned. And, and I would read them to you. There's two quotes I'm going to share with you. The first is from a guy named Daniel Doriani. He's written in the Reformed Expository Commentary. He writes this. Believers pray. Simple statement. If we face illness or loss, we pray lest we rebel against God. If we meet with success, we praise God, lest we give ourselves credit. Through prayer, we hallow every pleasure and sanctify every pain. We hallow every pleasure. We thank God. We give Him the glory for everything we are able to enjoy. And we make holy every ounce of pain as we put it before the sovereign God who can remove it so if He so chooses. Alec Montier, a guy out of the UK, writes, both in periods of suffering and trouble, I wish I could read it in his accent, but it's probably not helpful. Both in periods of suffering and trouble and in times of joy, prayer and praise alike acknowledge that he, God, is sufficient. To pray to him is to acknowledge his sovereign power to meet our needs and to praise is to acknowledge his sovereign power in appointing our circumstances, whether as the source of supply in need or as the source of the gladness of our joy, God is our sufficiency. You might go so far as to say, if we're not praying, we're either suggesting that God can't work, doesn't want to work, isn't able to work, or that we don't need him to work any longer. But prayer turns us always to the one who's able and who does work. 
It humbles us before him in times of need and celebrates when he lifts us up out of our difficulty. Again, keeping us humble before him, never as one who stands in a place above him, demanding that he acts in any certain way. Prayer in times of need humbles us. Praise in times of ease reminds us we still need him. In fact, he's the one that got us to that time of ease. He is responsible and he is sufficient He alone is able to do the exalting. We are simply members of his kingdom. We must sovereignly work on our behalf. I saw this attitude beautifully portrayed as I gathered this week with a group of pastors. There was a, it's a a group of pastors from across the area, um, we gather regularly for this. There's a couple of different groups I gather with. This one in particular is we're not reading a book. We're not, we're not doing anything like that. It's just a group of, of pastors and preachers who get together regularly. Who, What's going on in your life? How can I pray for you? Uh, how can I encourage you? That, that kind of thing. We're just this group of men who love, and, love one another and want to serve one another in this way. And we always kind of answer the same questions for one another. What's going on in our own life and what's going on in the lives of our churches and then, and, and then as we talk through it, we, we listen for how we can pray for each other. We, we, um, we listen for how we can encourage one another. As one of these men took their turn to talk, he began to talk about his life in ministry. He's been in ministry for a long, long time. You guys don't know him. He's not, he's not even from the city. But um, he's been in ministry for a long, long time. But, but he's at a place where he talked about how good it was how good the church was doing, how, how good ministry was doing. And, and then he turned and he talked about some of the challenges that not from within the church at this point that are coming from outside the church that are challenging them and, 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 and bringing some level of difficulty. And the thing that struck me, he had no idea I was going to preach this passage this Sunday. He didn't know anything about it. I was able to refer to it in that moment. But, but the thing that struck me as he talked about both of those things was he talked about how he was looking forward to getting away this coming week so that he could pray and praise. So that he could be excited before the Lord about what he is doing in the life of this local congregation and so that he could pray for guidance on how to face some of the decisions and struggles that are facing them because of what's happening around them. This humble attitude... He, he, he is presenting, he is modeling for his people. And he absolutely did it for me. It's so easy when things are going well to just jump up and think, okay, God, I don't need you, I'll come back when I do. But at every moment, at every moment, we are praying, both in prayer and in praise, This model of humility and exaltation, this model of us being humble before the Lord, trusting that he's the one that exalts. And should we go crazy and think that we don't any longer need him to exalt us, we need to continue in prayer. This beautiful expression of drawing near to God and expecting, longing for him to draw near to us. What an example from my friend. What what an example we can set for each other. What a beautiful picture of what it is to live the gospel life that James has called us to. To be ever about prayer. 
so that we are either calling on and supplicating, asking God to act on our behalf, or we are praising God because he has and because he is. Pray, Christian. While we wait on the Lord, pray to the Lord. The next example he gives us is anointing and prayer for the sick. And we look at it in verse 14 and 15 where, where he turns and says, if any, Is anyone sick? Is anyone among you sick? Sorry, let him call for the elders of the church and let, him pray, let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. It's an unfortunate thing that something as special as these two verses that James is writing described here has caused so much trouble um, in and around and among God's people. The Roman Catholic Church has developed a whole sacramental system around it. It's, it's now treated as a way to seek salvation and pardon of sin for those who are near death due to some illness. So they call it, uh, uh, gosh, I'm going to forget the unction. Thank you. Extreme unction. Thank you very much. Somebody's listening. Glad you are. Um, the idea is, is that they come when the person's near death and they anoint them with oil and there's a pardoning of sin that takes place. And that's not, that's not all that there is to it, but that's a big piece of what it's become. Others have thought that because there, is, seems, because there seems to be a guarantee in his words... That there is a guarantee of healing that, that, that this was only reserved for apostolic times and we shouldn't be using it any longer. Other groups have used this passage as a reason not to seek medical care at all. Hey, you don't need doctors. No, this is not me. This is just this is the idea. You don't need doctors. Just call your elders. They'll put some olive oil on you and, and you'll be healed. I, I just will say I don't hold that opinion. Now, let me say this. Since I've made a joke about it, I need to probably explain it a little better. The Lord works through means and methods every day. Through normal, everyday means and methods, he's at work. Now, there's times in history that he has, in ways that are above our ability to fully understand, he has worked in supernatural ways. And there's particular times in history where that seems to have happened more often than others when Jesus was on the earth was clearly one of those times when the apostles were extending and advancing the kingdom and the work that Jesus had given them to do. That's clearly one of those times. That is not necessarily the way we see him working regularly today. However, to suggest that he works through doctors or to suggest that he is not still ensuring that people either get well or he doesn't allow them to, that, that, that is, that, that's out of the question. Every day, David wrote this in the Psalms, every day that was mine, or was about my life, was written before there was one of them. God has always known the time and the days of our lives. He has never been questioning it, never been wondering what, what might happen. And, and so I would suggest that the best way to go about this is that when you are sick, and you're obviously going to have to go to the doctor, Call your elders to pray for you, right? Uh, we have a way that we ask you to do this every week. There's cards in the back of your chairs. We say, please fill out a card. We put out prayer requests when the prayer team's going to meet. We put out a call for prayer requests to the church. You know how often we get prayer requests? Very seldom. I think that probably says something about us. 
you're probably more like me than you want to admit. You're probably more like me than I want to admit. I think we could grow a little bit in this area. The idea here is that when you get a cold, you don't necessarily need to call me and Dave to come and anoint you with oil and, and pray over you. The idea, the language seems to in, in, in imply that this is a serious illness. So, so when you're seriously ill, certainly God will work through medical means. We expect him to. We long for him to. But let's pray for him. Let's pray for that to happen. That he gets the credit he deserves. Regardless of whether you pray or not, if you get well, you should still be praising him that you are well. Finally, still others have argued over whether we should understand these illnesses as physical or maybe we should interpret them as spiritual. In fact, most of my reading this week as I prepared for this message, message was around this struggle and what James means in this passage about whether these are spiritual issues or physical issues. And one person says this, and and these are godly men. These are godly people who I've been reading and they have had so many things in common as they have come through this book and and worked through the different nuances of the language and, and all of this. But here they come to this place and it seems like everybody has a different opinion. And so they've, they've, they've lost sight of maybe what's really at the heart of this because they want to try to figure out, is this a physical issue and there's a promise of a physical healing or is it a spiritual issue that there's a promise of a spiritual healing? Because in some way, I think they're... Well, I want to be careful. I think there's a difficulty in understanding this. They don't want to put God on the hook for something that's not being promised here. And I appreciate that. But I think all of these positions, all of these struggles, all of these problems, they put us off in the weeds. In fact, you probably already feel that. Like, why does any of that matter? Well, for you, it probably doesn't. Here's what I want you to take from this. I think most helpful for us to notice in this call. It fits with the whole context of what James is after. <clears throat> the person who is sick. And again, it's not just a small cold. The person who is seriously ill, who is weak, who is unable to do anything on their own is to call the elders. What happens when you have to reach outside yourself to depend upon somebody else? You're automatically humbled. I am, inde- I am not independent. I am not what the American dream says I should be. I am not able to stand on my own. I am a needy person. So you, who do you call? To call the elders. When the elders come, they anoint you with oil. This probably isn't medicinal oil. It probably is a symbolic picture of the Spirit of God at work. After anointing with oil, what do they do? Oh, that's enough. Glad you called us. Glad I got to put some oil on you. No. They pray to God in faith. And they look for God to work. None of us like being the needy person. I, I know that. I, I, deal with, I deal with it all the time. You all, every one of you that I have walked with through struggles, have not enjoyed being the needy person. I am with you. I don't like being the needy person. You always want to be the one that's being used to answer that issue, to solve the problem. It's a beautiful thing that there's both in the church. That there's times when you are at need, in need. And that there's people who God has placed around you 
that will draw, be drawn into a place where they will stand by you and serve you in that need. Why don't we let each other do that? What, what, what would keep us from that? I am more and more convicted with the fact, and I've said this a number of times, if you're in our church family, you've heard me say this before, if you're not in our church family, I would ask you just to seek to apply it to your own heart. <clears throat> I think there's a lot of great and wonderful things about this church. But I am struck by the fact that while I think people would walk in here and say, yes, we, we believe you love Jesus. Yes, we think that you are a word-centered church. I think the last thing they'd say about us ever is that we are a praying people. And it's not because there's not people in here that pray. I think we do pray. But I think there's a lot of people who need prayer in this room who aren't willing to actually admit that they need prayer because they are struggling so deeply. When you call your elders, you're calling people of position who you respect, who are people who are supposed to be mature. And you have to admit out loud that you aren't able to be all that you'd like people to believe you are. There is a humbling that takes place in that. And when your elders stand in front of you and they say, there is nothing I can do for you but pray, let me tell you, brothers and sisters, that is not an easy place to be. I like these moments of application to happen outside of the pulpit, but I'm just realizing... How easy it is to think that I can be your savior. I can't. But I know the one who can. And so the best thing I can say for you and the best thing I can do for you is pray. What a blessing it is to be humbled before the Lord and watch him do the lifting. Watch him do the exalting. So that after we pray, we turn and praise, not me and not some other person, but the Lord who has worked. So we anoint with oil, not looking to the oil for anything. But we pray. And then the third position he puts us in and the third call to prayer comes in this way. Confess your sin. It's in verse 16. You can look at it. You don't have to take my word for it. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Confess to and pray for one another. That's the idea here. Now, again, this puts us in a place where where there's been a lot of discussion about what's supposed to happen here. Oh, we're supposed to have these public confession times where in our corporate settings, we're supposed to just stand up and start confessing these sins that we have for one another. That's not going to be healthy. That's not going to be helpful. I think that the idea, the best way we can approach this in in, in dealing with this is it puts us in a place where we must admit we are needy. But now it turns our attention away from our personal need 
to the needs of others. Think about it. For, first, we, we were called to pray. Pray when we were facing trials of various kinds or pray while we're facing difficulty. Praise God when we're in, in, cheerful. There's this personal recognition of my circumstances. I'm in need or I'm excited. It is reason to pray to God. I'm sick, so I need the elders to come in and pray for me. I'm in a place of deep anguish, of deep despair, of of deep mental struggle. I am in a place of serious physical illness. I need the elders to pray over me. But here he calls us to this place where we confess our sins to one another and pray for each other. See, now we're, we're in a place where we're recognizing together that we are a needy People and undeserving people, a people who do not deserve anything from him. See, by confessing our sin, we are admitting that we are recognizing that should the Lord work on our behalf, it is an act of grace and mercy, not something he owes us, not something he's obligated to do for us. How often have you prayed and demanded God to act? You told him what to do. It's a humbling process. God is not obligated to work on our behalf. He he doesn't owe us anything. Try, try, Try to take up this discipline the next time you sit down to pray. And you begin to say out loud before you pray the sins you've committed just that day. Tell me how that goes for you. Tell me whether or not you're willing to stand up in front of this holy God and demand him to do something. Or whether you're going to humbly request that he act and he work his will for your good. It's going to be a radically different prayer, I think. So, Second, I think we should note that, that we shouldn't assume that every time we face some hardship in life that that's a direct result of sin. I think we have to be careful if, if we look at this that, that, that he's saying, oh, confess your sins to one another because everything you're facing is a result of your sin. That's, sometimes that's true, but not always. For example, Jesus and his disciples were leaving out of the temple and, and they come across a blind man and the, and the disciples stopped Jesus. You can read about this in Luke chapter 9. It's the first part of the chapter, verses 1 through I don't remember the whole context, but you can go and read it for yourself. They walk out of the temple and they begin, the the disciples say to him, hey, who sinned? Talking about this blind man, who sinned? His parents or him? And Jesus says, neither. This man's blind for the glory of God. Wait a minute, that totally blew apart their whole understanding. And then Jesus proceeds to heal him and put on display the glory of God. So not every, not every difficulty, not every trial that we might bring to the Lord is a direct result of sin. But on the other hand, there are instances in which the scripture leads us to believe that some are. Example, Paul writing to the Corinthian church says to them that, that some had become weak, ill, and some had even died. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30. Some had even died because they had abused the Lord's Supper. So we suffer in many ways as a result of sin. We, but it's not always direct. It's not like, oh, I sinned. I, I felt some way about a coworker. I just got angry with this coworker and shouldn't have. So you go out from your work that day and the car breaks down. God's not playing that game with you. In some way, we should know, in some way, every ounce of our suffering and difficulty that we face in this life is indirectly rooted in sin. Had Adam and Eve not sinned, 
We would not ever get sick. There would be no difficulty in this life. There'd be no hardship. Our work would produce the, the fruits that we expect it to. Our, uh, there'd be no pain in childbearing. There'd be no conflict in relationship. All of that stuff would be, would be, it wouldn't exist. Because they did, in some way, every ounce of our difficulty is indirectly rooted in sin. Sometimes it's directly rooted in sin, the sin of someone else who comes at you, who, who victimizes you by their sins. Sometimes this is grotesque victimization, like in the case of, of, of human trafficking. Or sometimes it's a little less uh, painful and hard to deal with because, because someone doesn't show up in, on time, you, you miss out on something. Because someone doesn't carry their own responsibility, you have to, have to pick up their slack. Or it could be indirectly related, or I'm sorry, directly related to your own sin. Years of neglect and, and not acting in a healthy manner is going to lead to a lot of sickness and a lot of struggle. It's just the reality. But I think, though, that James wants us to confess, not because he's trying to show us how sin is connected to difficulty, because it's in confession that we find forgiveness and fellowship with the Lord restored. And we find forgiveness and fellowship with each other restored. Because sin is divisive. and destroys relationships. How in the world can we pray for each other when we've been grumbling? You go back and you read how he's talked about they've they've been acting in partiality towards one another. They've been grumbling against one another. They've got tongues that are doing destruction within the church. Confess your sin. We We are on an even playing field. There's none of us that deserve this. And in fact, when we can confess our sins to one another, when, when I have sinned against one of you and I can come to you and I can say I am sorry for that sin, that, that the intent is that the fellowship should be restored when I've con- sinned against God in some secret way and I stand before Him and I confess to Him. What does the Bible promise us? That when we confess that He's faithful and just to forgive, restoring fellowship, restoring relationship, enabling us to stand close to Him, I dare say, I dare say that if we spent more time confessing and trusting in the Lord's forgiveness, it restores us to fellowship with Him, we might be more quick to pray. I would would go so far as to say that we've spent more time thinking on what we really deserve from Him and more time on what we really deserve from Him and what we've instead been given by Him in the gift of prayer that I think we'd struggle less with finding time to pray. And instead we'd be struggling to find time to do anything but pray. You think about this. The King of Heaven, Creator of all things, perfectly holy, absolutely righteous, always just, only ever good, says, confess your sins and call on me. It's pretty audacious for us to stand around saying, I just don't have time to pray. What? What? How can that be? How can it be? 
That we are on our face before the Lord of heaven at every chance, praising Him for His work and praying to Him for His ongoing work. I was recently convicted by a question that I heard David Platt ask. He asked, why is it that you and I spend hours in the church every week committed to the ministry of the word while we spend minutes every week in the church devoted to prayer? I think the issue of sin is at play here. I mean, there's all kinds of ways I think that it could be answered, but it, it dawned on me as, we were, as I was thinking on this issue of sin and prayer, and, and I was struck by the reality that there is something about study. I can, I can approach the Bible in a very academic way, never once even really stopping to think about what it is to stand, a sinner like me to stand before a holy, righteous God, not once really having to consider the fact that here this holy God has given me his word that I might know him and stand in his presence. I can approach it in a very academic way. Prayer, not so much. Oh, we can flip off those little flippant prayers that we're praying along while we're driving, right? Like, oh, Lord, uh, make sure that I get enough money. Make sure. But to enter into prayer in the way that James is calling us to enter into prayer, a life of prayer marked with prayer and praise. How in the world do we do that without recognizing the holiness, the righteousness, the purity of this God. See, I I think that this call to confess to one another and pray for one another is less a call for corporate times of confession. It's, it's, It's less about trying to figure out where our sins connected to our difficulty. I think it's more about removing all the hindrances from our time in prayer. You see, I would suggest that if we believe the gospel and believe what God has done for us as fully as we could and should, and I hope that we grow to one day, prayer would be less about the difficulty of getting into it and more about the difficulty of ever stopping it. Pray while you wait on the Lord. Pray. Well, let me close off with some just practical points here. What do we pray for? I told you there's no way we were going to get through both halves. We're going to come back and deal with the second half of this next week. But let me just give you practical things that you can pray for. James doesn't explicitly tell us in this passage exactly what it is that we should pray for. You could imply prayers of confession, prayers for healing, prayers for provision, prayers of praise. You you can certainly see that exemplified there. You can look back at his first call to prayer, James chapter 1, verse 5. All of these verses will be on the screen behind me. They're in the notes. I'll give you the verses later if you want them. But let me just push through them. In James chapter 1, verse 5, at the first call to prayer, he says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without approach, and it will be given to him. There's a, a little bit more to that that's a prayer of faith, and, and, and so don't, don't miss that component, but, but a prayer for wisdom, asking God in faith for wisdom. Outside of the book of James, in the lar- larger teaching of the Bible, Paul gives us numbers, a, a number of prayers. I walk with many of you through the book of Ephesians, and, and I use it over and over in the life and discipleship of this church because it so radically shaped me in my life of prayer that I, I, I just turned to it. And I would say, in Ephesians 1, Paul's examples of prayer, these are just some. There's others to be found in other of his letters. Ephesians 1, 15 through 19. 
For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, because you're Christians, he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. He is praying that they would know the God who saved them. That they would know him intimately and experientially. That they'd have wisdom from him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. According to the working of his great might. Brothers and sisters, I believe if we knew this. It would radically shape how we live our lives. We have so much to look forward to that it makes this world pale in comparison. What do we have left that we could possibly want? (laughs) We have a glorious inheritance. We have a hope waiting for us in heaven. And he has made it certain by the working of his great might. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is what ensures you'll be raised from the dead. Ephesians 3, 14 through 19. Just so you know, I think Ephesians is as much a book of doctrine and gospel presentation as it is Paul's prayer for these people. Ephesians 3, 14 through 19. He finishes his doctrinal explanation of what God has done through Christ in the gospel. And he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that the power that saved you is the power that now preserves you, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength. Listen to this, that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. Well, what what are we going to need to have strength to comprehend? What is the breadth and length and height and death? And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. He is praying that you might have strength to know God's love in its breadth, in its height, in its depth, in its fullness that you might experience Him. And then as he closes the letter, he doesn't, he doesn't leave us hanging. He calls us again to pray as he teaches about the, 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 um, the, the spiritual armor. He turns and he finishes and he says, now that you've got the armor on, go, go get up and charge. No, no, he doesn't say that at all. He finishes the teaching on the spiritual armor and immediately says, praying at all times in the spirit. With prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. You want to know what to pray? Pray for knowledge of who God is, what God has done, what He has worked through Jesus Christ and what we have to look forward to because of Jesus Christ. Pray for strength for your brothers and sisters that they may know and have strength that they might not just have knowledge of what's going on, but they might have strength to persevere. Pray that they would have strength to know the fullness and complete existence, the complete breadth, height, depth, and width of God's love for them and that they may know the fullness of God who dwells in them by the work of the Spirit. Pray. In every season, with every prayer. You hear a need, pray for that prayer. Or pray for that need. You hear a reason to praise, you sing praises to God for that prayer. Do it. Pray. At every chance you get, pray. For everything you hear, pray. Don't wait for somebody to say, let's pray. We sit around our community group. Every week we do this. I don't know if yours does it, but ours does. We sit around every week and we talk about how can we pray for each other. 
That prayer time should start the moment we say, "Let's." how can we pray for one another? As soon as those requests are being mentioned, you don't have to wait to officially go into prayer. You can all automatically begin lifting them up. I, I seek to do this. As we're going around the circle sharing how, what the Lord is doing in each other's life, I, 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 I seek to praise God for that answer. Not in some vocal way, because I'm not, I'm not trying to call attention to myself. I don't want to sound all goofy. Praise God. And everybody look at me. I simply praise him. And then when we gather in prayer, we praise him. What do we pray? Well, Jesus taught us what to pray. Our Father in heaven, Matthew 6, 9 through 13. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Three requests there that God would be hallowed, that he would be presented as holy before the world, that his kingdom would come, which it is coming. There's no stopping it. And your will be done. Three requests. You can make them every day in every circumstance, in every situation. You don't need a list of prayer requests from me or from anyone else. You look around this room. This is what we need. That God would be hallowed in our lives. That God's will would be done in our lives. That his kingdom would rule more over our hearts today than it does tomorrow than it does today and today than it did yesterday. Give us this daily bread. He's not beyond our physical needs. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Forgive our sins. And lead us not into temptation. Keep us from the work of the one who is evil. What do you need to pray? There it is. Why do we do it? Oh, we could say we do it because God has commanded us. That James says we must. Oh, I've got to put this duty and discipline on and i just got to pray. We could do it because there's an example set in the lives of men like Jesus, Paul, James, and yes, even Matthew Henry. Yeah, we could do it for that. Or we could pray because we finally understand our position before God. We are his people. We belong to him. He is sovereign and we are not. He is independent and we are dependent. He is all-powerful and never in need. And we always are in need and never powerful enough. Why would we pray? Because God loved you enough that he provided you the avenue of prayer that it might be the answer to your problems. Christian, while we wait patiently on the Lord, Pray faithfully to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, help us now. We need you more than we know and maybe even many times more than we like to admit. So would you work? Move upon us in the way that only your spirit can move. I pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Each week we come to this time to respond, to, to, to act in light of, to live in light of his word. And we do the same things every week. We sing praise. <laughs> pray it to him. Don't just... Don't just sing the words out of rote. Sing these words to him. 
and, and sing these words to your brothers and sisters about him. We, we, we gather around the table and, and we come and, and we take the elements that, that make it all worth it. This is the reality that in receiving the, 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 in receiving his gifts through Christ, in, in what these represent, the blood that's shed for us, the, the body, the perfect life. He was, a, he was a man just like us. He lived just like us. He faced temptation in every way we did, yet without sin. He lived a perfect life. He died a sacrificial death and he rose in victory that now we can walk in this hope that when we sing our praises to God, they are actually acceptable. That they're, that they're filtered through the gospel and they're made pleasing unto God. And, and every week we, we call you to pray. I don't think there's a better thing we can do in response to this message than really spend some time in prayer. Confessing our sin toward God. Confessing our sin toward each other. And praying for each other. For ourselves. And and I don't say this every week, but I'm back there every week. If I can pray for you, I would love to. It's one of the great honors, one of the great things that I cherish about this responsibility that I've been given. I'd love to pray for you, to put hands on you and to ask God to work. If, you, if you're struggling deeply with something, we've not done it often, but we've done it. We'll, we'll come. Most recent was Bob and, and Dave and I went. We gathered in, in an apartment. We anointed with oil and we prayed. What a humbling moment it was. Oh, I long that we would be a people who when, come, when, when, when strangers come in around us, they would see that we are not just a word people, but we are a praying people. And finally, every week, this call to worship is a call to go. You see, our world is desperately longing, seeking for something. And, and the beauty of it is, is that as we, as we gather here in prayer, as we kneel before this God, that's the thing they're longing for. The answer to every one of their problems, and you know him, and you have access to him. So go and let somebody know. Go and tell somebody about the grace of this glorious God who calls us to pray. Let's worship him now.